The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional Consciousness. Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This New Age channel told us so Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker? And then what about this Oprah endorsed, best selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals that are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G? As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshiping. Stuff. It gets very gory in the basement. And it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the Capitol insurrection. But it didn't stop there. Every week on Conspirituality Podcast, we track the overlaps between New Age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults. In newspaper articles about the arrest of Lee Clark and Kane Story and about their indictment and the upcoming trial, the fact that Brian Bowling had been talking to someone on the phone when he was shot mostly isn't mentioned. It only comes up one time. An article in the Rome News Tribune published a few days before trial notes that police said Brian's girlfriend was on the phone with him at the time of the shooting, but she did not hear the gun go off. And based on that reporting, you might have guessed that Brian's girlfriend, 15-year-old Caprice Hyatt, hadn't heard anything of interest to the murder investigation. Or you might have guessed that she hadn't been listening when the shot was fired. That guess would be wrong, though. And, you know, Brian got on the phone. I know Kane was there, or Josh was there, whoever. I just remember him talking to me and telling me that his friend was there, you know, his best friend. And I just remember him telling me that there was playing Russian roulette, and I was... I was like, okay, because I, I didn't know what it was. So you I, weren't alarmed at that point? No, because I didn't know what it was. When we talked to Caprice, she told us that she hadn't realized anything was wrong that night until she suddenly heard screaming on the other end of the line and then heard Brian's brother-in-law yelling over and over again for everyone to get out of the way. And then the line went dead. All I know was that I was talking, and the next thing I know, the phone got hung up. I called back, and Kenneth's the one that answered the phone, and, and he's hysterical. And I was like, hey, the phone got cut off. What happened? And he said, Brian shot himself. Brian shot himself. The newspaper article was right. According to Caprice, she didn't hear a gunshot when she was on the phone. But Caprice says she heard something much more important. She heard Brian say that he had Josh's gun and that he was playing some kind of game with it. That was definitely the last words he ever said to me. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com.
Brian's family had told Caprice that Brian had been shot, and she knew the situation was serious. But she didn't understand how serious until later that evening when her mother got home, and Caprice was able to ask her a question. My mama came home that day. She said she walked in there, and I was sitting on the couch. She said my face was white as a ghost. I was crying, and she asked me what was wrong. I was like, Mama, what's Russian roulette? And she told me. I pretty much broke down and went to my knees. I was, I was devastated. It was bad. It was Brian's friend, Tommy Hyde, who called Caprice to let her know that Brian was in the hospital. Her mom drove her there to see him. I remember looking, and I guess he had got off the elevator, but it was Josh. And uh, the only reason I knew it was Josh, because I'd never seen him before, somebody was like, oh, there's Eric, he is, you know. And I, I looked over, and he looked straight at me, and he was so beside himself. I remember we made eye contact, and I seen his face and how upset he was. Caprice had talked to Josh on the phone before, but she told us the first time she ever saw him in person was that night at the hospital. He had seemed incredibly upset over what had happened to his friend. Caprice says it never occurred to her to wonder if Josh might have done something to Brian on purpose. And besides, once her mother had explained to her how Russian roulette was played, she assumed that's exactly how Brian had gotten injured. I just thought that he had shot himself and that that's what they were playing because that's what my mama told me it was. Like, that was my thought. Oh, God, you know, why would they do that? Why did he do that? You know, like, why did he play that game? At some point that night, the police talked to Caprice about what she'd heard on the phone with Brian. And as far as we can tell, she told them the same thing she would tell us 25 years later, that the last words Brian ever said to her was that he was playing Russian roulette. And that's probably why, in the beginning at least, investigators had been so quick to conclude that this was an open and shut case. Josh's story had already told them that Brian had died playing Russian roulette, and then they had Caprice confirming his story. We don't know which officer it was that Caprice actually spoke to that night, but it's possible it was patrol officer Mark Corbin. I remember somebody, I remember him talking to his girlfriend on the cell phone. The, well, I don't know if it wasn't a cell cordless. phone. But yeah, I think it was like one of those cordless. Yeah. I, for some reason, I thought that I talked to a girl, but... Someone talked to the girl, we don't know who. Uh, but... I don't remember it vividly, but I do remember, I mean, talking to somebody, but uh, that's the reason I, I would have thought that that would have been in a report somewhere. Two days later, Caprice was brought in and interviewed again. This time, the interview was recorded. But that recording, like the recordings of almost every other interview in this case, has gone missing. And no one in Floyd County can agree on whose fault it is that it's been lost. Our associate producer, Amory Davis, spent months communicating with the various agencies in Rome, trying to find the case file, with no luck. It feels like one of these things, so we're being told by Floyd County Police Department, who, you know, who's been communicating with Amory, and Amory says they've been lovely. But they are saying, we gave everything to the DA's office. Yeah. The DEA's office is saying, we don't have it, and, and it's probably at the police department. Subtext, go fuck yourself. Subtext, it's here, no, it's there, no, it's it's 
it's back and forth and back and forth. They keep sending us back and forth between the two departments. According to the Floyd County Police Department, all interview recordings and most of the case file was given to the district attorney's office 24 years ago, and they never got those files back. But every time we've asked Lee Patterson, the current Floyd County DA, about what happened to that file, we've gotten the same response. I've already responded to your request, and the case file is unable to be located. That's not an answer. She's, she's not denying SCPD gave it to her. She's not denying. She's just saying, she's saying we can't find it. To date, the DA's file in this case has still not been located. And that means we don't have the recording of Caprice's interview a few days after the shooting. Nor do we have any records about what Caprice said during another interview with investigators that took place sometime later on. In fact, we only know that this third interview happened because Caprice told us about it. It was during this interview that Sergeant Dallas Battle told Caprice about the evidence they had that showed her boyfriend had been murdered. Dallas is the one that told me about the pillow in the wall or, and that Josh is the one that shot him and that Lee was there. Lee was there, but Josh shot him. Right. Lee was said. outside at the window. You mentioned the pillow. What is your understanding of why that was like evidence or important? Well, um, according to, I think it was Dallas, and um, that told me that so, that Josh had put a pillow to Brian's head and pulled the trigger. Yeah. Like I guess to quiet it or something like that. I don't know. Like a homemade silencer? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Did he tell you that they found a pillow with a bullet hole in it? No, it, just a pillow stuffed in the wall, was, and the, that's where the gun was. Somebody, there was a hole in the wall. Caprice isn't the only witness who told us about this pillow. It's something we heard about over and over again from just about everyone connected to this case that we spoke to. Did you ever hear anything about a pillow? Yeah, I heard something about a pillow. What'd you hear about that? I heard it. A pillow was used for a silencer or something. And I heard that there was no gun residue powder on Kane's hands. But in my book, he was an accomplice because he held the pillow over his head. And he put a pillow over his head and shot him. You've heard about the pillow? Yes. What do you hear about that? That's it. While we were down in Rome, Jacinda and I updated Kevin about our efforts to learn more about this pillow. I don't understand what the pillow has to do with anything, quite frankly. Well, we're getting a little more information if we believe it. Now, explain to me, because I don't, I don't know the details as well as you guys do. Well, it's hard to give you an answer about the pillow, because, like, the pillow story, we don't know the story. We're still... The pillow story is basically that a few days after the murder, they were in there cleaning up the house, and someone found the pillow stuffed in the wall. And this pillow allegedly has a bullet hole through it and everyone believes that this pillow was used to muffle the sound of the gun going off okay but side note we don't know who found the pillow we don't have pictures of the pillow that were taken intentionally of the pillow there is very little that we know for sure about the pillow we know that it was blue we know that there was blood on it we know it was actually more like a couch cushion and not the kind of pillow that you typically use to sleep on. And according to the only document about the pillow that we have from the Floyd County Police Department, 
We know that it was collected from the Bowling's trailer by Captain Tommy Shiflett at 6 p.m. on October 18, 1996. Only, we know that didn't happen, because that would be impossible. So here's the other weird thing. The pillow, the only record we have of it, is a evidence inventory sheet. And yet, this evidence inventory sheet says they found the pillow at like 6 p.m. on the 18th of October. So three hours before Brian died. Wow. So that's obviously, I'm going to go ahead and say I can, that was like uh, backdated. I'm not going to say falsified, but someone incorrectly logged. Someone got the date and time wrong. <laughs> someone wrote the wrong, someone claimed the pillow was found on the day of the murder when it was not. Yeah, I found it before the murder. The pillow is a confusing part of this case, and at times I've been tempted to throw up my hands and just forget about it. Because, like Kevin said, I don't understand what the pillow has to do with anything, quite frankly. But, as I had explained to Lee Clark, without this pillow, Lee and his co-defendant Kane might not be in prison right now. Well, we also talked to a juror, finally. Ah, you did? Okay. But the only reason he could remember being certain of your guilt was the pillow. The pillow, really? Yeah. The really. pillow? The pillow. I know. And I asked him to try to explain the pillow, like, why that was evidence of guilt, and he was just like, it was used to, like, smother the shot or something. I can't say with 100% certainty how the pillow first became part of this case. We heard multiple conflicting accounts from the people we spoke to. But I think most likely it was Brian's brother-in-law, Kenneth, who found the pillow. That's what both Kenneth and Amanda remember happening anyway. And out of everyone that we spoke to, Kenneth and Amanda seem to have the clearest memories about the pillow's origins. That's probably because for them, finding the pillow was the dividing line between when they stopped believing Brian's death had been an accident and started believing it had been a murder. That's exactly what I thought it was, you know, yeah. it was an accident. When did that start to change? Um. When Kenneth found the pillow in the wall. Tell me about that. Um, he had, it was a couple of days after Brian, Brian was still at the crime lab. And Kenneth, he was just looking, you know, and he seen a blue pillow, which went with Mama's living room suit. Um, which Brian, he kept it in there, you know, he'd sleep on it in there or something. The whole time something didn't just, just it didn't, one, and, one didn't add up to two to me here on this shooting. It just didn't play out for the Russian roulette. So I just kept snooping around in his bedroom looking and that's when I come upon the pillow. It was stuffed in the wall and I was like, something ain't right here. Why is this pillow hid, you know, why? So I got it out and I seen that it had brain matter on it, blood, you know. If you're wondering how a pillow can be hidden in a wall, well, Kenneth explained that there were lots of holes in Brian's bedroom walls and a sort of empty space behind those walls. It made for a good place to hide things. And see, when I first met them, her and her brother was buck wild i mean they they was hoes all in the walls so that's why they was just able to stuff the pillow down in the wall it wasn't like they busted a hole in the wall 
There was holes all in that wall. I mean. Most people who know about the pillow think it was used as a silencer. Amanda recalled seeing a gunshot hole through the pillow and thinks either Lee or Kane shot Brian through the pillow, using it to muffle the sound of the shot. And her husband, Kenneth, agrees that the pillow was used as a silencer. But he has a very different theory about how this was accomplished. Was there a hole in it? A hole in... The pillow? No. No, no, it was like, it wasn't like they shot through the pillow. Oh. They muffled the gun with, with the pillow. They used it like this, like they wrapped the pillow around the gun. Rather than holding the pillow in front of the muzzle and firing the gun into the pillow, Kenneth thinks the pillow was wrapped around the gun, kind of like a hot dog bun around a hot dog. But if you grab that pillow right now this day and wrap it around, if you put a gun in your hand and wrap it around, you perfectly see how the matter and blood was that it was perfect. So it the blood was, stains outlined yeah, the gun? Yeah, outlined the pillow, you know, how the pillow would have been creased. Folded. Yeah, folded. You may think whether or not there was a hole through this pillow would be an easy question to answer. But it's not, because the police lost the pillow, pretty much immediately, in fact. A few days after Brian was shot, two officers went out to the Bowling's trailer to pick the pillow up, but it never made it back to the police station. It just kind of disappeared. The pillow did not stay lost forever. Months later, it did turn up again, and the police were able to send it off to the crime lab in Atlanta for testing. But while the pillow was missing, the investigation into Brian's death stalled out. No witnesses were interviewed, no forensic tests were performed. There was just nothing being done at all. The case went ice cold. It stands out to me from the file, the little file that we have, that yeah, they, that. Um, they do nothing for about six months. Like, yeah. They exhumed the body, they did do that. You remember that period of time when I they, do. okay. Was there anything going on or were they just twiddling their thumbs? Twiddling their thumbs, I guess. Cause we was all sitting around, we, have no answers, you know. Amanda felt that during this period of time, investigators had simply given up on looking into her brother's death. But her Aunt Melody was in regular contact with Dallas Battle and David Stewart throughout the investigation, and she has a different take about what was happening. So you didn't get the sense that they were just ignoring it? It was no, part of a strategy? No, not after I plainly let them know that Russian roulette, you're not shot in the head like that. Well, they just... I think they were just, yeah, and I think that they were just wanting, and I I think that they've even said to me, sit back and listen. Kids are going to talk. Somebody's going to talk. Just give it time. Sit back and listen. Eventually, somebody did talk. Three somebodies, in fact. In the seven months after Brian's death, investigators found no evidence that implicated Lee Clark in any sort of murder conspiracy. The only evidence police had was Kane's confession that he'd accidentally shot Brian, and the Weed Eagle note from the casket with the No Narc sign written on it. And then investigators learned that they had a big problem with Kane's confession. So my guess was that they were, once the results came back negative for gunpowder residue, once they found out that Kane isn't the shooter, they need a second 
person in the room. So they start building this other case. The very, very next event is May 16th, 97, when Angela Bruce is interviewed and gives her story about the party, picks out Lee from a lineup. So out of nowhere, out of the cold, dark nothing, this case goes from zero to Angela Bruce. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Late one evening in May of 97, David Stewart and Dallas Battle went out to a trailer park in South Rome. There, they interviewed a woman named Angela Bruce. We don't know how they learned about Angela or why they wanted to talk to her, but Angela turns out to be the big break in the case that investigators have been looking for. It is her statement that leads to the arrest of Lee Clark and Kane Story for the murder of Brian Bowling. In her interview that night with Sergeant Battle and Investigator Stewart, Angela Bruce tells the investigators about how, three months earlier, she'd thrown a house party. There'd been about 15 to 20 people there in all, including a guy named Phil Story. Phil Story had brought along his friend Smitty, his nephew Kane Story, and another boy, about Kane's age, but Angela couldn't remember his name. Angela tells investigators that she and four of her friends had been sitting around her kitchen table playing cards when Phil Story's group arrived. Kane and the other boy had joined them in the kitchen, and then they had started bragging about how they had murdered Brian Bowling. I shot him and I don't care who doesn't like it, Kane told them. I went into his bedroom, I put a pillow over his head, and shot him execution style because he knew too much. The other boy, the one Angela didn't know, had been bragging too. He hadn't shot Brian, he said, but he'd been in the room when it happened. And all of them were laughing about it. Kane's uncle included, who had patted Kane on the back and said, I've got a nephew here who will blow anyone's brains out. Kane and the other boy told a group sitting around the kitchen table about how they were members of the Freebird gang, and how they didn't let no one out of the gang alive, and how their gang had a very important rule. If you talk to the pigs, you will die. At that point, Angela told investigators she'd had just about enough of the murder talk, so she'd drawn a knife on the two boys and made them leave her trailer. When Angela Bruce finished telling the story, Dallas Battle and David Stewart showed her a photo lineup. Do you recognize the boy who was with Kane at your trailer that night, they ask her? Yes, she tells them, and points to photo number two in the lineup. It's a photo of Daryl Lee Clark. Angela Bruce is the reason that the pillow is so important to this case. 
To investigators, the pillow is corroboration for Angela Bruce's story. Because how else could she have known about the pillow unless she heard Lee and Kane confess to using it in the murder? When Dan Whitrock, who we like to call Dan the cameraman, joined us in Rome to film some of our interviews, he had a lot of questions for us about the significance of the pillow and what it means for Angela's story. You mean because she says, uh, that's an interesting point, because Angela talks about using this pillow. Yeah. So uh, that's, the, a, that's an interesting point. In her, her whole story, she implicates both Lee and Kane. She says Lee confessed to using a pillow over Brian's head. So if no pillow was used, then this confession is not accurate and most likely, slash definitely, uh, has been given to her by the cops. That's an interesting point, yeah. Did she go to court and testify? She did. Huh. But no one else from the party. Did she testify in court specifically about the pillow? Yep. Over the head. Angela Bruce was the very first witness investigators found who was able to provide evidence that linked Lee Clark to Brian's death. And according to Angela, there were at least a dozen people at her party that night who could corroborate her story. And yet, Sergeant Dallas Battle and investigator David Stewart don't speak to any of them. The only investigation is from like May and June, really. That's only like three, four, five months after this party that had 20 people there. And they couldn't find one more person to corroborate Lee being there. They couldn't find one more person to say that there was a confession made by anyone, that they did it. But this is not like a huge case. They didn't have like that many witnesses to talk to. And they just like never bothered to talk to someone else's important party. I don't think it was a matter of not bothering. They were selective in picking the witnesses yeah. that could tell, that could help with the narrative. Or they talked to another party goer and got a bad story. And they're like, let's not talk to any more party goers. Angela Bruce no longer lives in Georgia, so we weren't able to speak to her on our initial trips to Rome. To find her, we would need to make a separate trip. But there was at least one person who had been at Angela's party that night that wasn't hard to find. We talked to Phil Story, who is um, Kane's uncle. He's got like a long white beard and long hair. He looks kind of Willie Nelson-ish. He looks the part. And he's got this great southern accent. What does he think about the whole thing? I mean, he doesn't think Kane did it. No. He's never thought Kane did it. It's a sad day for Brian's family. But, uh... Uh... I just don't think nothing happened the way they say it happened from, from the get-go. Cause like I said, I know Dallas battles, and Stewart, I know them both, and Dallas is as crooked as them handlebars right there. Always was. Phil Story does not think his nephew killed Brian Bowling, but he did confirm to us that yes, there had been a party at Angela Bruce's that night, and yes, Kane had been there too. Did you know Angela Bruce? Who's Angela Bruce? I knew of her. She was a... Uh, a uh, girl that lived down here in the trailer park. She had about two or three kids. And uh, I was walking down through there one day with my buddy Smitty. He's lived in the trailer park too, up above her. And so we was walking down through the park. She had her screen door wide open, you know, and music was on. And like I say, I knew her. So we walked on over, she's come on in, you know. 
And Kane was with us too, matter of fact. And uh, cause uh, when we walked in the house, Smitty, you just have to know him. But he said, I got the killer with me. You know, just being stupid, comical, you know. He thought he was. But uh, Angela Bruce is not one to be believed, period. Phil's story told us that Lee Clark had not been at the party. And while Kane had been there, he'd never confessed to anything. In fact, according to Phil, the only person who mentioned anything about Brian's death that night had been his friend Smitty. What did Smitty look like? Right there, probably bones, because he's dead. Well, back then in uh, 1997. He was uh, he was maybe an inch taller than me, short hair, kind of balding. He's the one who said, I got the killer with me. I got the killer That's with me. That's all he me. said. So he's just joking around and says, yeah. I got the killer with me. Five days after interviewing Angela Bruce, investigators David Stewart and Dallas Battle got another huge break in the case. They found a second witness who was able to implicate Lee Clark in Brian's death. And that was, someone pointed out where you were, but it was sort of like up on behind Pleasant Hope Church? Right, yeah, it was right behind the cemetery. So you would have been- Right beside of uh, Joshua Kane's stories, Trevor. So you were right next to the stories? Yeah. In 1996, Debbie Kelly was the story's next-door neighbor. Actually, she was related to Kane's father. They were cousins of some sort. You're related to them or related to his daddy? Yeah, his daddy. I, I'm related to him, too. Um, and did you know his, did you know Josh at all, or? Yeah, he was staying himself and uh, played his guitar, loud music. Um, what kind of music? Oh, rock and roll and hard rock. <laughs> um, in fact, it was disturbing, you know, when my husband had to get up and go to work, you know. And you knew the bowling family as well? My mother was best friends with Brian's grandmother. And uh, so Brian would come down to my house. He would sit on the porch and he would he loved me to tell the stories that my mom told me about his dad when he was little. <laughs> Brian was a sweet, humble guy. Debbie Kelly cleaned houses for a living, and on at least one occasion, June Story, Kane's mom, hired her to clean their trailer, which is how she became a witness in this case. And uh, so I was cleaning the house, wasn't looking for anything because I don't prowl when I used to clean houses. I just don't. I don't touch people's stuff. So on the bar, there was the gang rule book. It had crossbones and skull. I can still remember that to this day. And it was open. And it had rules. And it said if a brother is caught narking on another brother, the punishment is death. Well, I turned it over. That's what is this? You know. Mm -hmm. And it said free birds. And I said, free birds, you know, don't make no sense. I said, this has got to be some kind of gang or something. 
and there was crossbone and skulls. I'll never forget that. On the cover? On the front of it. So it says like free birds up top or something, and then yeah. there's the skull, bone, whatever that is designed? Yeah. And the head of the free birds, it showed what title they was. Joshua Kane's story was the head of it. And he's my own cousin, I'm sorry. But I'm not gonna lie. The timeline of all of this is somewhat hazy. It's not clear whether Debbie Kelly found the notebook before or after Brian's death. But at some point, Debbie Kelly tells Kane that she found the notebook and questions him about it. Yeah, he asked me about it, asked me what I saw. I said, Kane, I said, that's the devilish something I ever seen in my life. Cause I said, I'm a Christian. I said, Kane, on the front of that road book is crossbones and skull. That ain't nothing but the devil. In May of 1997, Sergeant Battle and Investigator Stewart talked to Debbie Kelly about what had been written inside that skull and crossbones notebook. It was a gang rule book, she tells them. What do you remember reading in the notebook? Yeah, it was a list of rules, uh, the do's and the don'ts, and be initiated into the gang and all this stuff. The first page of the notebook had been titled Members. And at trial, Debbie Kelly said she'd seen four names listed there below. Kane Story, Lee Clark, Joseph Wilkins, and Brian Bowling. And written beside each boy's name had been his gang name. Brian had been Joker, Debbie Kelly said. Joseph Wilkins had been Slick. Lee Clark was Ace. And Kane had a gang name too. Though by the time of trial, Debbie Kelly could no longer recall it. And on the second page of the notebook was a list of the bylaws of the Free Birds gang. I don't remember all the rules, but what stood out to me the most is if a brother's caught narking on another brother, the punishment's death. That's the one that stood out to me the most. Because Brian was already dead. And I know, my gut feeling told me that Brian had to be the one to tell the police about the say. In 1998, when she testified at Lee's and Kane's trial, Debbie Kelly had only been able to recall four of the rules that had been listed in the gang rulebook. One, if a brother is caught narking on another brother, the punishment is death. Two, never talk to pigs. Three, always stick up for your brother. And four, Never do drugs. Do you recall any other, um, anything else in the rule book you read? Any rules about drugs? No, but I found out they had pot. So that's got to be in there somewhere, but, you in, know. In your testimony, you uh, said, like, one of the rules was always stick up for your brother. Yes, yes, And yes. a brother shall not do drugs? Yeah, mm-hmm. Which I don't think they necessarily followed. <laughs> they didn't follow that road too. <laughs> After Brian's death, Debbie Kelly decided to tell the Bowling family what she'd seen in the story's trailer. Did you tell anyone else about the notebook? Uh, I talked to Deborah. Do you remember when you did that or how that came about? Well, when she came to my house, Deborah came to my house, and she was all distraught about Brian. And she said, Debbie, what? What possessed Cain to do that? She knew I was his cousin. I said, sit down, Deborah. I said, you know I cleaned June's house. 
I said, there was a gang rule book on the bar. Now, I didn't dream I was going to have to go to court. I would have thought about it, though, but like I said, if it was my boy, mm -hmm, I'd want somebody to come forward. Debbie Kelly did end up having to go to court, where she testified about what she'd read in the gang rule book. But she doesn't know what happened to the gang rule book itself. She never saw it again. I, I don't have a clue. All I know, last time I saw the gang rule book was on that bar open. What's it like? One and only time. That's the one and only time. And you never and saw it again? No, I don't even think David Stewart got it. Based on the statements from Debbie Kelly and Angela Bruce, investigators charged Lee Clark and Kane Story with the murder of Brian Bowling. They were arrested on May 23rd, 1996. It was three days after that that Sergeant Dallas Battle found the third and final witness who was able to implicate Lee Clark in Brian's murder. And according to Brian's Aunt Melody, this witness was the most important witness of them all. The, the smoking gun, or the, what did she call it, the linchpin? The, what, she, what stood out to her as the, the evidence that convicted them? Lee, what convicted Lee? Was Charlie's testimony. Really? Yeah. Charlie identified Lee in court, and that's what put him away. Because she kind of acknowledged there was not that much evidence against Lee otherwise. Charlie Childers and his brother Wayne had been with the bowling family in their living room the night that Brian was shot. When the gun had gone off in Brian's bedroom, everyone else had rushed over to see what had happened. But Charlie Childers had stayed put. Charlie and Wayne, they were still in the living room. They didn't know what was going on. And Charlie's deaf, so when everybody else ran to the back of the house, Charlie stayed in the living room, you know. And the front porch light was on, and it shined out there, and you could see the front yard real good. And I guess that's where he seen Lee run across. Because Charlie is deaf, Sergeant Battle had not been able to interview him directly. At trial, Battle testified that he'd spoken to Charlie through his brother Wayne, who'd acted as translator. And, Battle said, through Wayne, Charlie had told him about how he'd been looking out the window after Brian was shot, and how he'd seen a boy run through the bowling's front yard. Battle said that when he showed Charlie the same lineup that he'd shown to Angela Bruce, Charlie had immediately circled photo number two, the photo of Daryl Lee Clark. I know that uh, the Dallas battle first talked to Charlie like probably six, seven months after Brian was killed. Mm -hmm. Do you know why that it took so long to no. them to connect? I really don't. Um, you know, I think you know with with Charlie having the language barrier, mm -hmm. Wayne could Wayne could sign with Charlie just fine. Mm -hmm. And then of course when in trial they brought in another. Um, interpreter right. that was totally, you know, neutral. But um, he picked him out in trial. Lee's father, Glenn, says that although Charlie and Wayne Childers knew Kane's story, they hadn't known Lee at all. Kane knew both of these brothers, but as uh, far as I know, Lee had never been up there, but they knew Kane pretty well. And is there any reason to believe that Charlie's brother had anything against Kane or, or Lee or 
anyone? Kane never done nothing to them. You know, they they liked him. You know what I mean? They liked him coming around and all. It wasn't no, there was no reason there for them to have any bad feelings toward him. Brian's Aunt Melody was right about Charlie Childers. If he did see Lee Clark running outside the bowling's trailer that night, that is the smoking gun in this case. We needed to find out how certain Charlie was that the boy he'd seen running through the bowling's front yard really had been Lee Clark. And to do that, we needed to find Charlie. Well, Silver Creek Mini Mart, that yeah. store, Charlie's always worked there. And honestly, they may be able to give you information where to find him. Charlie, if you went around Silver Creek area, that, that Mini Mart and that Creighton Road, you're going to see Charlie. All right, well, should we head over to the Silver Creek Mini Mart? In the past, Charlie and Wayne Childers would not have been hard to find. That turned out to no longer be the case, though. Have you seen them around lately? Um, let's see. I think it was probably six months ago I seen Charlie. He was working back up here at the store, but he's not now. I'm not sure where they're living. Did y'all ever meet the children's man? We, we can't find him. No one knew where to find Charlie, but Jacinda and I weren't going to give up that easily. Charlie is too important to this case. Given all the missing records, the only way to answer a lot of the questions we have about this case would be to hear from the investigators themselves. So, you, wow. So you guys spent basically two weeks down in Rome. Mm-hmm. What's your takeaway? What do you think happen now? I still think we the piece that we need to understand how this investigation went down, um, we need to get from the investigators themselves. Ideally, David Stewart. I think there are pieces of this case that only they can answer. But in terms of most of the witnesses, how they ended up involved in this case, I feel like you have a much better idea of that. Aside from Angela Bruce, how she got involved, how Dallas Battle found her are still a black box. Which is why Susan and I had been looking forward to the interview we'd set up with investigator David Stewart. Then, on the day we were scheduled to meet, I got a message from him. I just got a text from Mr. Stewart. Oh, what'd he say? Unfortunately, investigator David Stewart had to cancel on us. We were really disappointed because we think he may have answers to these questions, and I think he really wanted to talk to us. We called Kevin to let him know what was going on. So the reason we're not having drinks and chatting is because I got an email. Would you like to hear it? Yes. All right. So he says, Dear Miss Davis, I regret to inform you that I will not be able to meet and give you an interview or talk with your company about the Brian Bowling murder. We discussed briefly last week when you showed up at my apartment. I'm laughing because we literally did just knock on his door um, and he pointed that out. I'm sorry for this decision, but it is above my head and out of my control. He's restricted to disclosing or communicating with the public and or media regarding active cases or anything concerning my agency or former agency, including current or past cases and incidents I have been involved in without the full permission of my sheriff and the district attorney. So I don't know if that, if that means he asked and they told him no, or if he needs to ask. It means they told him no. Yeah, I, I would interpret it that it means, it means that they told him no. And um, I would also interpret it that he didn't write that email. I read that as Floyd County PD has a 
rule book that says no narking. There's another question too, though, that you might be wondering about right now. And that's why did investigators believe that Brian Bowling had been murdered when moments before he was shot and killed, he had told his girlfriend that he was playing Russian roulette. But that question, we do have the answer to. Did you know that you were what's called an unindicted co-conspirator? I don't know what that means, but you can tell me. <laughs> what you were, mean? so sometimes they'll describe criminal acts that others were involved in, but not criminally charge them. So you were named in the, in the charging documents as a conspirator to the murder. Oh, wow. But one who was not being criminally charged. Wow, what, what does that even make sense about? Caprice Hyatt was not herself charged with conspiracy to commit murder. But Lee Clark and Kane Story were charged with conspiring with her to murder Brian. If you're a co-conspirator, why wouldn't you be charged? Police believe that you're a murderer and right. that you're guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. So why wouldn't they charge you? Right. That don't make sense to me. It's because of Angela Bruce that Caprice Hyatt was named the co-conspirator. One week after Battle and Stewart first interviewed her, they went back to her trailer to talk to her again. And this time, Angela Bruce told them something that she'd forgotten to mention when they'd talked to her before. When Lee and Kane had been in her kitchen, Angela said, confessing to everyone there that they had conspired to murder Brian Bowling. They also explained that there had been a third member of this conspiracy, Caprice Hyatt, Brian's girlfriend. Lee Clark had told everyone in Angela's kitchen that Caprice's role in this conspiracy had been to call Brian and find out if he was home. Then, when she finally did get him on the phone, she'd sent a message to Lee's beeper to let him know that Brian was there and that they could go ahead with the plan. Then, while Lee and Kane were busy confessing to all of this, Caprice herself had shown up on Angela's doorstep. She had blonde hair, Angela said, and she'd driven up to the trailer in a little black or blue car. There was another teenage girl with Caprice as well, but Angela didn't know who she was. Caprice had come up to Angela's door and asked for Lee and Kane. The two boys had then left the party with Caprice, hopping into the little blue or black car with her and the other girl, all four of them driving off together. Caprice had known that there were some in Silver Creek who had suspected that she'd been part of a plot to kill Brian. But she told us that what she'd never understood is why anyone would think that she'd had a reason to want Brian dead. Why would you kill, like, even, like, why yeah, would well, you? Yeah, well, what would be my point? Well, I mean, what would be my motive? Do they ever tell you or suggest what the motive would be for you? No. Nope. So what they say is that you were part of the gang and that the gang had a rules that said anyone who talks to the police must be killed. And because Brian talked to the police, you agreed to other gang members that he had to be killed. Oh, wow. You didn't know that? Lord, it. Wow. Of course, if Lee Clark and Kane Story are guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, then Caprice Hyatt must have been guilty of murder as well. Even if, for some unknown reason, the prosecutor had decided to let her get away with it. Well, for their theory, to it, you kind of have to be involved because you're saying that Brian told you on the phone he's playing Russian roulette. Right. So if there was no Russian roulette, then why would you say that? Right. So if you're telling the truth about the Russian roulette, then right. then there wasn't a murder. Right. So you have to be lying right. in order for it to be a murder. Right. According to Angela Bruce, Caprice Hyatt had been part of the conspiracy to murder Brian. 
At trial, it was her testimony alone that linked Caprice to the crime. But according to Angela Bruce, this murder conspiracy had also involved shooting Brian through a pillow placed over his head. And that should have been a big problem for investigators. Because the pillow was sent to the crime lab for testing, and the results came back negative for the presence of gunshot residue. Next week on Proof. And I think you mentioned that your brother was at the crime lab? Yeah, they took his body to the crime lab, I guess for the autopsy and everything. That's what I was, that's what I was told. You were with Lee? Yeah, I mean, we was partying uh, that night. We dropped Kane off, we went back and partied. All these old lies that was spread around, I think is what led to me getting arrested. And, I, and this is just my personal opinion right here, Susan. I can't prove it one way or another, but I think all these stems back to damn Dallas Battles and Deborah Bowling concocting this shit up and putting it in these young teenagers' minds. He certainly wasn't proud of what went down, and he... He changed his story, too, at the very end. I don't know if it was a slip or intentionally said. I got all these people testifying about all these phone calls about... Caprice Hoyt uh, supposed to be beeping me on the beeper, but where, why has nobody subpoenaed these Wait, 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 she's supposed to beep you? You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode five. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof, Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski. And our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by Adam Goldstein and Michael Ulatowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening.